So um, thank you very much, everybody, for coming this evening to the last lecture in our joint IFPO CBRL series on the contemporary and modern Levant. I know there are many events happening, other events happening tonight, and it's a busy week in the run-up to Ramadan. So thank you very much for, um, for turning out. I know you're a distinguished audience, so thank you very much. And, uh, and we look forward to the discussions after the lecture. Um, my name is, is Carol Palmer, and I'm, I'm part of the team that run uh, this series with my colleagues here, Nori Gnevo and Palestine Naili. And so um, we're looking forward to the next academic year and to continue it. But for tonight, um, we're very pleased <coughs> to have with us Dr. Thabit Abdullah, to present, uh, to present this lecture. Um, and um, it's been a fantastic opportunity to have you here this evening and to also have you join us for some of last, last week's um, uh, <laughs> historical study on <coughs> World War I in, uh, in, the, in, uh, in the Middle East. So, um, I think I'm going, with no more ado, I'm going to ask you to uh, please speak to us on Ottoman-British rivalry and its effects on the Mandaean community in Iraq. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. It's a real pleasure uh, to be here. Um, I'm always interested as a historian to find the link between seemingly tiny incidents or events that happen to everyday people with the much broader uh, developments that affect the region as a whole. And uh, a very long time ago when I was a graduate student, I came across, oh, this is going to fall. There. <laughs> uh, I came across a letter in the British archives that was addressed to Queen Victoria from the leaders of the Mendean community, the Mendean Sabians of Iraq, concerning the incarceration of what they defined as their paramount leader, uh, a priest. So I, I sort of noted it, it was interesting, I put it aside, went on to do other things. Recently I went back to it and uh, looking at this, I found some other documents also in the uh, British archives concerning this case. And then I also interviewed elders of the Mendean community about their recollections of the case, much of it which was bound up with uh, fiction and fantasy and so forth, but still very interesting uh, source. So, I put all this together and I would like to present to you this case which I think is quite interesting. <clears throat> now, someday in early December, in the year 1895, a uh, sheikh of the Mandane community named Sheikh Jadar, one of four sons of Sheikh Sahan ibn Sheikh Sagar, appeared before the British Vice Consul <coughs> in the city of Muhammara asking for help. Sheikh Sahan, the father who was incarcerated, was the Ganzibra of the Mendean community. And this term indicates the high priest of the Mendean community. 
He had been captured by the Ottoman government and held in a jailhouse in Basra. He was uh, accused with two separate crimes. The first is his implication in the murder of his own nephew. And second, in, and far more serious, the thing that really troubled the Ottomans, was that he was accused of supporting, in a very effective way, very actively, a major uprising of the Beni Esed tribes around the Chibayish area in southern Iraq. So let's take a quick look here. This I got from a tourism map, early 20th century, which shows, oh, you could hardly see it, I think. But uh, the Chibayish area is this region here, okay, in the heart of the marshland. I'll uh, describe it in more detail in a minute. Now, at the beginning, the vice consul didn't seem to pay much attention to this. There are several other letters that he wrote that seemed to talk about other things, hardly mentioning this case. But later on, he took greater and greater interest in the case and actually then threw himself into the matter, organizing meetings of the Mendean leaders, writing letters to various Ottoman officials and British officials, and continuously bugging the wali, the governor of Basra, the Ottoman wali, on the uh, issue of the Mendean Sheikh uh, Sahan. Uh, on the 18th of March, 1896, the British vice consul uh, urged the Mendean, the top Mendean notables at the time to write the letter to Queen Victoria, which I discovered, uh, and they all signed it, pleading for her assistance in getting their uh, Genzubra out of jail. Now, one of the things that I noticed in the letter caught my attention, especially after interviewing some of the Mandane elders, was that there was a very important name that was missing in the letter. This was the name of Sheikh Sam ibn Sheikh Shabbut. It was very odd because he was closely related to Sheikh Sahan. And he was already, at that time, one of the leading priests, and soon to be the prominent priest of the Mendean community. So this is, this is the case. Okay, so what's so interesting about this? In my opinion, the issue raises a number of very interesting historical questions. Much of it relates to much broader questions. First of all, any uh, uh, opportunity to shed light on the Mendeans of Iraq in pre-modern period or early modern is something that should be investigated because we know very little about uh, them. The most important thing about their involvement here is why would they get mixed up in such a rebellion? Why in the world would the leader of the Mendean community, which is so vulnerable, so tiny, so completely defenseless, get involved in a very dangerous tribal rebellion against Ottoman authorities? And why the absence of this very important figure, Sheikh Sam, in the letter that was sent to Queen Victoria? Does it tell us anything about the dynamics? In addition to this, this was a chance to consider Ottoman-British relations and the competition between the two from the perspective of a minority rather than from the top-down perspective that 
mo most of publications are, including the question, why would the British get involved in defending such a tiny and uh, basically not very profitable community from their perspective? Why risk even their relations with Ottoman authorities? So, to answer these questions, a little bit of a background is needed. The Mendeans, the origin of the Mendeans is not really very well known. There's all kinds of debates about it. Some have argued that they go all the way back to ancient Iraq, to, to Babylonian uh, period, and that the, the present <coughs> community is essentially a direct, uh, uh, directly uh, came from, from the uh, ancient Babylonians. The strongest evidence we have is that they emerged during the Parthian and early Sasanian period, when Mesopotamia was bubbling with numerous religious movements and ideas. There were the indigenous religious traditions of uh, especially uh, Neo-Babylonian religions who were interacting now with important currents of Hellenism, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, and of course Christianity. The Medean religion was likely an authentically southern Mesopotamian Gnostic religion that emerged from these interactions. Their religious texts are written in Mendaic, a dialect of southeastern Aramaic, most closely related to late Babylonian Aramaic. In their religious teachings, there's enormous amount of importance placed on Jerusalem and John the Baptist. Uh, and thus we see here, perhaps, the Christian uh, influence. Their history under Islamic rule is as murky as their ancient roots. Arabic sources speak of the community in southern Iraq, which is referred to as the Muhtasile, or Al-Sabi'a, the Sabians. Abu Hanifa, the great jurist, uh, thought that the Muhtasile and the Sabians were one and the same, and he confirmed that this community were, was the one mentioned in the Quran three separate times as belonging to Ahl al-Kitab or people of the book. Uh, the Sabians or Mendeans apparently produced a number of illustrious figures during the height of Islamic civilization, especially under the Abbasid Caliphs, such as Abu Ishaq al-Sabi and other figures who believed to have had Mendean uh, parentage, uh, such as the noted Muslim mystics, Maruf al-Karhi and Abu Fath al-Wasati. When the French traveler Tavernier visited Basra in 1652, he mentions that they were in fact very st still very numerous, not only in the city but in the hinterland as well. However, by the time that Karsten Nebur visited Basra in 1765, the Mendean population appears to have declined sharply. This was especially true after the plague of 1831, which decimated the community and particularly its priests. This was also a time of gen general chaos in the country as a whole. Thus, uh, uh, there's all kinds of reports of mass massacres of Mendeans, kidnappings, evictions, and other kinds of oppressions. All of these apparently encouraged 
conversion, and thus the numbers dwindled. <laughs> By the late 19th century, the time that we will be looking at, the remaining Mandan communities were living under the precarious and very fickle protection of several tribes throughout the region of southern Iraq and Iranian Khuzestan. So let's take a very quick look here just to get a sense. This is the most important uh, practice of the, of the Mandaeans, which is baptism in a flowing uh, river. This is another scene. These are, of course, modern, but they give you a sense of the, of the community. The Mandaeans have their own alphabet. It is unique to the Mandaic uh, language, very closely related with other Aramaic uh, dialects, especially Eastern uh, Aramaic, but it is unique to the Mandaean, uh, uh, to the to Mandaic, which has led some uh, historians to assume that they possibly had some sort of a a uh, scholarly uh, civilization in the past. This is a very interesting. It's a magic uh, bowl, which is meant to keep away evil spirits from uh, the owner. This one is actually in Toronto, in the uh, uh, Royal uh, Museum in, in Toronto. Uh, the style here, the spiral, was one used also by uh, early Judaism, and then by early Christianity, and in fact some uh, Muslim mystics, some Sufi mystics of the medieval period also used this very same style of a spiral uh, to uh, wash away the evils. This is a photograph uh, from the early 20th century of leaders of the Mandan community. Now, what does this have to do with the case of tribal uprisings and Shah Sahan and Ottoman British rivalry, etc., etc.? The case with which this study is concerned is intimately tied to the 19th century Ottoman reforms known as the Tanlimat. Overall, the aim of the Tanlimat, as many of you know, is to strengthen the empires through European-style state centralization. The most important issue in the Tanlimat was centralization. So, we have various reforms, military, legal, administrative, economic, educational reforms, all geared toward greater integration of the empire through state centralization. The Tanlimat were not applied to Iraq until the second half of the century, especially through the efforts of the much celebrated Wali Mithat Pasha. Prior to the Tanlimat, the tribes of southern Iraq had enjoyed a high degree of independence. But the application of the Ottoman land code of 1858, which was part of the Tanlimat reforms, began to affect the independence of the tribes. Mithat Pasha was especially enthusiastic about its application, and he insisted on land registration in the name of individual cultivators, rather than the pre-existing uh, practice of commonly held land uh, by the tribe as a whole. This reform, caused resistance and confusion and mismanagement and led eventually to the concentration of gigantic estates, large land holdings in the hands of a few tribal leaders, a few sheikhs and some absentee landowners. Many 
of the previous landed uh, of the previous tribal ships were left with nothing, and of course, so many of the tribesmen became uh, almost in a state of ser uh, servitude. The strongest resistance to these kind of reforms took place in the southern part of Iraq, especially in the mid to the lower Euphrates region at the hands of the very powerful confederacy of tribes known as the Muntafal tribes. This was one of the most powerful tribal confederations, led especially, uh, especially under the leadership of the Al-Sadouns. The Al-Sadouns were noted for their staunch resistance to Ottoman control, but during the mid-19th century, a number of their sheikhs began to cooperate with the Walis of Baghdad. Most important here is the Sheikh Nasr al-Sadun, who became paramount Sheikh of the Muntafaq in 1866. He developed a very close working relationship with the Wali Methad Pasha, and in fact, in 1875, Nasr was appointed Wali of Basra. But other Sheikhs within the Muntafaq opposed this. In 1881, for example, uh, Sheikh Nasr's own brother, Mansur al-Sadun instigated a very large uprising, and this caused instability in the region, with many other smaller tribes also rebelling. One of these tribes that took advantage of the instability was the Beni Asad tribe, which was situated around the Chibaish area. The Beni Asad tribes were led by the Al-Khayyun, Shakes. <clears throat> um, let's take a quick look here just to clarify. The region of the Beni Asad tribes is really the heart of the marsh areas in the mid to lower uh, Euphrates area. These are photos from uh, late 19th century in National Geographic showing the kind of villages that the Beni Asad controlled. Here's another showing how difficult it is for a central uh, administration to actually control this area because of the marshes and the remoteness of it. This is a modern uh, photo of the same region that gives you a sense, though of course much of the marshes have been dried now, uh, uh, but many of them still exist. And this is a modern uh, village in the region that we are discussing. Um, it's not exactly clear why the Beni Asad, what triggered the Beni Asad to rebel. But in the year 1893, under their paramount sheikh, Hassan al-Khayyun, uh, the Beni Asad breached a dam that, let me see, oops, what happened? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Thank you, thank you. So the, there was a dam here in this area between uh, Sugishiyuch to Qarna. Uh, it was called the uh, Saddat Nasr Pasha. And the, the Al-Khayyun, especially Hassan Al-Khayyun, the Sheikh, uh, breached the dam, flooded the region, and declared that he was now in opposition to the Ottomans, especially because of the land uh, registration 
schemes. The Wali of Baghdad responded to this uprising by sending local expeditionary forces and driving Hassan al-Khayyun out of out of the Chibayish area here to his home, uh, his home village and what would become the, uh, the well, I'll, I'll stop using this, I'll just point. What would become his, his headquarters for the rebellion, the Mdayana village, very close to, to Qarna there. He would flee there. Um, Hassan, despite this threat, refused to surrender. He continued to direct his operation from his base at Mdayana, uh, where he hoped to cause enough problems for the Ottomans to improve his negotiating position. Um, several skirmishes took place. The Ottomans actually suffered a major setback with the uh, killing of one of their officers. And this led to a much more powerful response from the Ottomans where the Wali ordered the very formidable commander Muhammad Pasha al-Daghestani, the commander of the 6th uh, Ottoman army, to march on Mdayana. As the troops arrived, Hassan set fire to the town and fled with his followers into the marsh, then across the border to Iran. The Ottomans confiscated the <coughs> lands of uh, uh, Sheikh Hassan al-Khayyun, they imposed a, a very harsh indemnity on the Bani Asad, and they stationed troops in uh, Chibayish. The Bani Asad were broken, and from 1896 to 1904, they remained without a recognized sheikh, until in 1904, another one was recognized. This is the end of this rebellion. Ha uh, sheikh Hassan remained a wanted man, constantly on the move in the marshes, until he died somewhere in the Hora Jazar Marsh in 1903. Okay, so how does this relate to the Mandaeans? How do they fit in? What role do they play? At the end of the 19th century, there were 120 Mandaean families in the town of Chibayish. Almost all of them were artisans, particularly carpenters and blacksmiths. Their artisanal skills had been kept within the community and passed down for generations. These were essential for the tribesmen as they provided them with boats, furniture, farming tools, and weapons. According to Mandean oral tradition, Sheikh Hassan al-Khayyun, the leader of the rebellion, was known to have gone to great lengths to ensure the protection of the Mandaean community in his territory. There's a story, for example, that, is, that was related to me, that one day uh, news came that there were a couple of thieves that had attacked a Mandaean home and stole some, some, something. Uh, the Mandaean heads of these households came to Hassan al-Khayyun, who immediately mobilized all of his uh, tribe and ordered that the thieves must be found that very same day. And when the thieves were brought in, he called in the leaders of the Mandaean community and told them that they were free to impose any kind of punishment on these thieves. This caused many of the 
the al Khayyun sheikhs, the subordinate sheikhs, to complain that our paramount sheikh seems to be paying more attention to this tiny minority than to his own people. Now, whether this story is true or not in its particulars, he does have a reputation of having been very tolerant of the Mandaeans and very protective of them. This atmosphere of tolerance, however, had very clear limits. The Mandaeans were generally shunned and made to live in a separate section of the town. There were very clear red lines as to the mixture or, or how much uh, rights they had, though they were protected. According to oral tradition, again, Sheikh Hassan was especially fond of the Mandaean priest, Sheikh Sahan, who would uh, uh, be captured by the Ottomans. Uh, at the point just prior to the rebellion, Sheikh Sahan had not yet become the paramount priest of the Mandaean community. However, he already had a reputation as being an extremely effective religious leader. He was very charismatic, we are told, and something of a miracle worker. There are stories of him performing all kinds of miracles. For example, in one story that was told to me by a descendant of the al Khayyun uh, family, actually, not a Mandaean, uh, that one day there were floods taking place in the Euphrates, as so often happens, and they called on Sheikh Sahan, who took his staff and struck the water, and it proceeded back. Uh, now, again, uh, obviously this is fictional, but the fact that he had this reputation is important here, that he had a reputation of being an important figure. But, for sure, it was not for his miracles that Sheikh Hassan was so enamored by him and so interested in protecting him. The truth lies in that Sheikh Sahan himself and his sons were among the most skilled blacksmiths that the region had known. They were especially renowned for their ability to manufacture weapons, not just swords and spears, but more importantly, bullets and very specific explosives known in southern Iraq as the dam. These were essentially metal balls uh, with gunpowder and pellets and a fuse. And it took a great deal of skill for a blacksmith to be able, uh, to, be able to manufacture them. Before Sahan's rise to the position of Mandaean leader, the Mandaean religious establishment was extremely decentralized. Priests performed their services according to long-established traditions in areas where they had followings. They had no recognized institutional authority to impose a will upon, uh, to either impose their will or for anybody to impose his will on them. This situation is not so different from that of other religious minorities in the Ottoman Empire before the Tanzimat period, including many of the Christian churches that tended to be very decentralized, though on paper they, they were centralized. In fact, they were extremely decentralized. It was through the development of the so-called Ottoman millet system in the early 19th century that a change was initiated with religious communities toward greater centralization and hierarchy. 
1856, just around the same time as the Ottoman Land Code, the Ottomans promulgated a law requiring the organization of all non-Muslim communities within clearly recognized millet institutions. By 1900, there were as many as 12 recognized Christian millets in the empire. As with the Tanzimat regulations in general, this law was poorly applied in Iraq and the Mendeans remained unaffiliated to any of the officially recognized millets. According to oral tradition, however, even though they were not affiliated to a millet, sometime in the late 19th century, possibly in the mid-1880s, the Wali of Baghdad ordered all religious communities to nominate a leader who would represent their interests to the provincial government, perhaps as, as a first step toward establishing a millet. Rather than foster greater cohesion, this immediately had the effect of intensifying divisions within the Mandaean community, as different clans jockeyed to present their own candidates to the Wali. Eventually, the Wali accepted the nomination of Sheikh Sahan on the recommendation of the very powerful Sheikh Hassan al-Khayyun of the Bani Asad. This was not popular among some sections of the Mandaean community, but he had the backing of a very powerful tribal sheikh. Now, other than just receive this title, that suddenly now he was the leader of the Mandaean community, Sahan now had new powers, effective powers, to impose on the community a community that was not accustomed to such centralized authority. He had the power to assign land plots to Mandaeans, to adjudicate land disputes, plus the right to collect a percentage of the fees that priests uh, received for conducting marriages and baptisms. This was very common and still common in Iraq where a Mandaean priest would collect a fee or a gift when performing a marriage or a baptism. His ability to impose such rights came primarily from his patron Sheikh Hassan who publicly announced his intention to punish any Mandaean caught challenging the new order. This was all before Sheikh Hassan's rebellion. Now, so this was a new, something new that the community had to adjust to, and not many were happy about it, including one young Mandaean priest named Sheikh Idan, who also happened to be Sheikh Sahan's nephew, who refused to pay him the percentage that he demanded from baptisms and marriages. Uh, this, the, according to oral history, Sheikh Sahan went to Sheikh Hassan al-Khayyun, asked him for support in, in disciplining this uh, uh, priest, and Sheikh Hassan ordered one of his servants to find and murder the young prince thus making an example of him to others. This, of course, deeply shocked the Mandaean community and deepened, in fact, the sense of divisions. Among those who was extremely angered by this kind of heavy-handed imposition of authority was, the, uh, was Sheikh Sam, whose signature did not appear on that uh, petition that I spoke of at the beginning of my discussion. Sheikh Sam approached, or rather reproached, uh, Sheikh Sahan 
uh, telling him that he had committed a terrible crime, that this was unprecedented, etc. And for his defiance, Sheikh Sam was also threatened, fearing for his life, he took his family and fled across the border to Iran. Okay, so let's take stock here. I've mentioned so many different things, so easy to get lost here. Um, but let's, let's take stock. So what, what's happening here? The Mendeans were extremely important servants of the southern tribes. In, extremely important carpenters and blacksmiths. They had inherited skills that were kept very secretly, actually, within their families, and especially those that knew how to manufacture boats and weapons were extremely valued. Sahan, who was one of the uh, most skilled blacksmiths and also a charismatic priest, was empowered as part of Ottoman centralization, as part of the Ottoman Tanlimat. So here's the link with this very tiny community to these very big events that are happening that uh, are affecting the whole region. And this empowerment was challenged within the community, and it caused a conflict. <clears throat> the empowerment, of course, of Sheikh Sahan was not for free. Given his patronage by the Al-Khayyuns, it is not surprising that shortly after Hassan's declaration of revolt, Sahan and two of his sons moved with Sheikh uh, Hassan to Mdayana to support the uprising and to <coughs> manufacture the explosives that the Al-Khayyun used in their rebellions against the Ottomans. <coughs> After crushing the rebellion, Sahan and his sons were captured, and this is when the British suddenly enter the fray. They presented themselves as protectors of the Mandaean community, much to the annoyance of the Ottomans. Now, the history of European patronage of religious minorities in the Middle East is well known. The British, uh, as uh, uh, th is the case with many other European powers, provided protection to vulnerable minorities as an essential strategy in the formation of loyal indigenous allies who in turn would facilitate commercial and political penetration into the region. Yet while the Mendeans certainly welcomed efforts of assistance, of protection, and there are many records predating this of the British sort of flirting with the Mendeans and offering them protection, they never succeeded in becoming firmly associated with the British as clients or protégés, possibly because the Mendeans didn't really have much to offer. The Armenians, for example, were powerful merchants. The Assyrians, later on, would become a very important uh, military asset for the British, especially in northern Iraq. But the Mendeans had neither of these. Nevertheless, there was this flirtation. The British apparently were investigating whether there was any benefit to this. This was at uh, was taking place at a time when the British were challenging Ottoman authority in the area by maneuvering to form alliances and establishing treaties with local leaders. The case of Kuwait and Sheikh Sabah is very important here. This is exactly the time when the British are forming alliances and challenging Ottoman authority, chipping away gradually at it. In 1898, Sheikh Sahan's case was sent to Baghdad where he was to stand trial for his role in Sheikh Hassan's insurrection. 
The trial, however, never took place as Sheikh Sahan died in Basra jail sometime at the end of 1898. Immediately after his death, Sheikh Sam, who had challenged his authority and fled to Iran, returned from his exile and would become the new paramount priest of the Mandaean community. With the rising power of the central Ottoman state and growing influence of the British taking place concurrently with the declining authority of the local tribes, the Mandaeans suddenly became more exposed and vulnerable. The priesthood became more polarized and divided between those who sought protection of the British and those who looked to the Ottomans. This division continued even after the British occupation in World War I. The pro-British faction, uh, Sheikh Sahan and his family and descendants and so forth, became very strong supporters of the British as they took over Iraq and collaborated and so forth. Sheikh Sam, on the other hand, and his family and his descendants became much more attracted to the growing Iraqi nationalist movement and began to join opposition groups, including the Iraqi Communist Party, actually, uh, in continuing this tradition of being very suspicious of British intentions. The suppression of the Beni Asad uprising also had more ominous consequences for the Mandaeans. After centuries of residing with the Beni Asad at Chabayish in relative peace, the al Khayyuns revoked past assurances of protection. Especially after the death of Hassan al Khayyun, the Mandaeans of Chabayish faced repeated attacks and pogroms, their homes and properties pillaged, most of them fled to Basra and Sugishiyu. So what can we conclude from this presentation? In the late 19th century, southern Iraq was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. It wasn't really that important a place. And the town of Chibayish was a backwater of southern Iraq. And the Mandaeans who inhabited Chibayish in the region around it were a very tiny, powerless, and reclusive minority. So what makes this case interesting for us? It seems to be a case of an insignificant minority in a backwater of a backwater. But I would argue that the imprisonment and death of the Mandaean priest, Sheikh Sahan, occurred within a broader context, shaped by state centralization and European imperialism. Both had a strong impact on minority communities by deepening pre-existing fault lines within these communities, and in some cases, creating new ones. By considering the role and impact of these contending forces through the lens of this event and the struggles of this small community, we see a very different perspective from the usual history of Ottoman-British uh, competition. Ottoman land and tribal policies in, in Iraq created waves of unrest that suddenly forced defenseless minority groups, like the Mandaeans, into alliances and actions for which they were ill-prepared and wholly unable to control. The new millet system failed to give minorities new rights or powers as the Ottomans had promised. Instead, they tore at the community from within by creating a poisonous climate of new hierarchies intense clan and family divisions, and cutthroat competition for lucrative 
positions. Rather than providing more protection and security, British involvement in mundane affairs placed the community squarely within the broader Ottoman-British struggle for hegemony in the region. This had the result of accentuating the divisions within the priestly class by creating pro-Ottoman and pro-British factions that lasted well into the post-Ottoman period and indeed, even today, where the pro-Ottoman faction would become uh, allied with the left opposition to the British, whereas the pro-British faction came to ally more and more with the central government, with whatever government was ruling Iraq, including the Ba'ath government and uh, subsequently. So these divisions are very old and they go all the way back to this period. Thank you so much.